Hello, and welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am one of the hosts, uh, Camden Bird, um, Assistant Professor of History at Eastern Illinois University, and I am joined by my friend Ramya uh, Swayamprakash. Ramya, how are you doing today? Who are you? That's a great question. According to my kid, I'm too old. Um, but I am an assistant professor still at uh, Grand Valley State University. I'm old and I'm at Grand Valley State. Right, well, the, I mean, that's fair. That's works. Um, well, welcome back. I mean, we've been away all summer. Yes, it's been a long and short summer. How was I your know. summer? Yeah, same. I felt like I had big plans at, in mm-hmm. May to um, both rest and apparently be wildly productive. Yeah. I don't think I did either of those things and same. summer but went by quickly. So I don't know what to make of that. Same, same. But we did go out west to Yosemite Valley mm. while it was on fire. Um, and that, <laughs> or it is on fire still, I don't know. Um, and it was an interesting experience to be out west, which was, you know, to see all the snow melt and sink our feet in frigid waters while mm. it was like 100 degrees Fahrenheit out, like, outside of the water. Um so it was nice. No, oh, that does sound nice. We 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 managed to do some hiking as well. We you know I'm in central Illinois here. It's not known for its abundance of trees. Really? Uh, yes, I know. I know. Um, you know, soy only grows so tall. Um, but uh, we did manage to get up to to the up to the upper upper Midwest uh, to um, you know, picture rocks and some other hikes up near um, Boundary Waters as well. So. We had a big oh, yeah. summer. We had a big summer. Yeah. Boundary waters look really ugly, by the way. It's super ugly. No. Don't go. Don't go. Don't, don't, go. don't go. Don't go. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I'm excited for this season. I guess we can call them seasons, though we don't label anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we're starting off with a strong episode today. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say that we are actually going to speak with Melissa Ford um, about her book, A Brick and a Bible. Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest during the De- Great Depression, which was published by the Southern Illinois University Press. Yeah, and 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 um, Dr. Ford is an associate professor of history at Slippery Rock University in Western Pennsylvania, where she teaches classes in Black history, women's history, and social movements. She obtained her PhD from St. Louis University in American Studies and proudly identifies herself as a St. Louis native. So... Um, Strong Midwest chops, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, you know, what what did you take away from our conversation uh, with Melissa? I think what, what really struck me most was just this, the politics of, um, ac- not acceptance, but the politics of, you know, the, the, the need for Black women to come across as being acceptable to everybody uh, while still sort of empowering and pushing um, radical ideas in radical movement, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the dichotomy that the politics of respectability raises with the uneven and unfair nature of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how structural that is. So mm-hmm. sort of the ways in which they navigated that space without ever losing their authentic selves. Um, and that title, A Brick and a Bible, is just epic. 
Yeah, agreed. Um, and we, we talk a little bit about sort of the anecdote of where that comes from as well. Um, I, I was struck with um, both just sort of how interesting the actual history here is um, of this piece of labor movement, political movement of the Midwest, and, and a series of case studies across Midwest cities in which you clearly see a through line of connected um, experiences that could be, you know, something that we might call sort of a Midwestern movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but also noting the sort of um, unique differences in those communities as well, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is important to keep in mind when we talk about regionalism as well. Yeah, right? yeah. And I appreciated that these were cities, I wouldn't say specific, but city-based stories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like, I think it, it makes the Midwesternness of it a lot more um, nuanced and, and apparent in ways that, you know, no shade on people who to study one place. But um, I think this is not necessarily a comparative as much as it just gives you like a great overview um, mm-hmm. without losing the nuance and the specificity of those places, right? Um, yeah, and it's just, it was just such an interesting read. Um, I did not get an undergrad in history. And oftentimes, labor history was, seemed really difficult because there's a lot of theory and, mm. you know, yada, yada. Um, but this is the kind of labor history I can read myself and assign to my students and know that they will have their minds blown in the best possible. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it it, it really is, um, a testament to the research and writing ability to sort of both uncover these stories, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and write it in a way that is engaging. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're at this moment, um, not just in the pod, but I think, across history boards where we're talking a lot more about what it means to write a history mm-hmm. and thinking more consciously um, and intentionally about the narrative, not mm-hmm. just um, of what we see, but how we tell these stories um, and how do we make these stories more accessible without like this this is an exceptionally accessible text i don't Mm -hmm. think it's difficult to read Mm -hmm. um at the same time i don't think that the author went out of her way to make it like accessibility not come at the cost of content right um which is what i really liked about this there's there's a great deal of depth there's a great deal of nuance there's a great deal of of individual stories um but at the same time it's not like it's you know, difficult to read, mm-hmm. or it's not something that you can't really assign in an undergraduate class. You can. Agreed. Right? Agreed. And, you know, we talk about that. I think there's so much room for this sort of research to continue to grow mm-hmm. and expand our understanding and, and, and break sort of myths and perceptions of the Midwest as well. And and Dr. Ford does provide sort of a call at the end to also think mm-hmm. about other localities that did not make it into this yeah. Uh, book that we we might find similar uh, or slightly different histories that are worth exploring as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, one last thing I think it and in in right now while while we're talking, I'm also thinking that what's interesting now about uh, a labor history like this is is that it's about women, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that adds that nuance and and sort of takes away from the masculinity of of. Uh, a certain wave of labor history again no shade on on that you know uh 
that wave of labor history. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is this gets into a lot of everyday life, which therefore has a lot of movement, has a lot of animation, and is a lot more closer to where people are. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, right? Um, the, the 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 there isn't a divide between the home and the political, like yeah. in all of our lives, there isn't really a divide. So yeah, this is a great book. If you haven't yet, please go read it. Um, <laughs> yes, go read it. Um, any any other updates? We have new music, new intro yeah. music. You're about yes. to hear um, a band, Vansire. They're from Rochester, Minnesota. So don't worry, we're keeping our Midwestern sort of representation on lockdown here. Please other things, to... I don't know. You're supposed to say this on pods. I don't know if we've ever said this. Yeah. Rate and please review read... the pod. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, please rate and review us. Tell us how great we are. Um, if you don't like it, please email us. So, you know, um, we, 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 we love, <laughs> I guess we'd love some hate mail too. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, share it with friends and in the land yeah. of so many social media apps and, uh, availabilities, this could mean tweeting it. No, no. Uh, Xing it. Xing it. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, uh, exit. <laughs> yes. Uh, blue sky it. Do we have a verb for that yet? I don't know mastodon it? it is that one taking off i don't know or th- create a threads about it? i don't know see this is the problem and then there'll be a new ma- uh there'll be a new app by the time we record our next episode so you know <laughs> yeah. do that yes. it also yes yes all right well if there's nothing else should we uh should we make a pod yeah let's do it okie dokie Dr. Melissa Ford, thank you so much for joining us today on Heartland History. Great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Before we jump into your book, A Brick in a Bible, perhaps you could give the listeners um, maybe a little bit of a a preamble or or an origin story to this work. What led you to study uh, Black women's political activity in the Midwest during the Great Depression? Yeah, well, the origin story to the book is my origin story, which is I'm from St. Louis. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis um, and kind of learned that traditional St. Louis history. Uh, And, you know, you kind of begin with Lewis and Clark and end with the 1904 World's Fair. Uh, And I mean, yes, that is definitely part of St. Louis history. But uh, I went away to college, came back to St. Louis University for grad school, and I took a class uh, on Midwestern history. And I was like, oh, this will be so easy, right? <laughs> Even as a grad student, I'm like, how can I get the easy classes out of the way? <laughs> um, and what I learned was like, I was taught one very specific traditional narrative of St. Louis and Midwestern history. Uh, and so this class explored like race and violence, identity, ethnicity in the Midwest. And as I was looking for, you know, my final research paper, I, I found this strike in 1933 where African-American women uh, joined forces with communists to mm-hmm. protest. So in the midst of the Great Depression, in downtown St. Louis, in places where I've been, uh, places I knew, in my own backyard, uh, there's this incredible moment of radical activism with Black working class women who are, you know, challenging the status quo, challenging uh, systems of oppression. And, you know, it's, I'm like, wait a minute, where was this history in high school? Where was this history when I was, Uh, growing up in St. Louis. Um, And then in the midst of that, Ferguson happened. And, you know, I'm like, 
10 minutes away um, and trying to make sense of this, uh, not only as a St. Louisan, but as a, you know, American citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I'm working on this research paper, I'm looking at Ferguson, I'm like, you know, there's something here um, that goes back to the refrain, you know, we study history, so don't we repeat it, but we, we study history so we can make sense of the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this project was what else, what is happening in 1930s St. Louis, 1930s Midwest, that can help us make sense of this black radical activity we see in Ferguson. And then uh, it continued to become more salient. This project is unfortunately parallel with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. And I was writing the conclusion during uh, George Floyd protests. Um, and so all of this became made it become more and more clear to me that black women's political activity in the Midwest, whether it's 1930, whether it's 2020, um, is uh, essential components of any uh, education for Midwesterner, for American, for people living in America. Our long answer short was because I took a class on it. No, I mean, I think that's important. I think sometimes it often is those classes or those, you know, those reading lists or, and then also spurred by modern events that say like, oh, we can historicize this moment or sort of these movements. And I think the the big frustrating factor was um, national media was looking at Ferguson and they're like, oh, how could this happen? How could this happen in the Midwest? I thought the Midwest was, it's like, well, if you study history, mm-hmm. you learn mm-hmm. that, uh, of course, this is happening in, in places like Ferguson and places like Minneapolis. One of the things that you know struck both Kendra and I um, was just the the fact that you make a unique case, um, well, a case for the uniqueness of radical activism in the Midwest as opposed to other regions, and it's something that we've alluded to and talked about amongst ourselves for sure, uh, but also on the podcast. And so, I was wondering if you could speak to the kinds of or the sorts of factors that created the conditions for this unique form of black women's activism and also comment uh, perhaps on, you know, in a sense, if this activism is, if it's unique to the Midwest. Yeah. And that's a question I get a lot and it's, it, it goes back to the history that's, that's already been written, right? Black radical activity, the books on that, um, have been written, but those books are in New York. Uh, they are in the South. Um, specifically, I mean, Robin D. G. Kelly wrote the book on Black radical activity in the South um, in Alabama. And then we have others who wrote the book on Harlem Black radical activity. Um, and so those are amazing books and they set the foundation for, for my work, my study. Um, but also just goes back to the essence of what is black radicalism. Black radicalism as going back to Cedric Robinson's kind of definition in his huge book, um, uh, Black Marxism. Uh, black radicalism is born out of conflict, uh, physical, economic, social. And so certainly we're seeing those conflicts in the South. They look a very certain way. We're looking at Jim Crow states. We're looking at institutionalized segregation as well as uh, as public violence uh, against black bodies in terms of lynching and police uh, brutality. And so that's what conflict looks like in the South. Conflicts in Harlem looks very different. If we're looking at this vibrant black radical community, we're not looking at the same as a uh, community we're looking in rural Alabama. And so The conflict then we see in the Midwest, again, is going to be different. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the conflict here is born out of the Great Migration. And this is an mm -hmm. argument I make that Black Midwestern radicalism uh, is born out of the Great Migration. It does mm -hmm. not exist uh, before uh, 1919. Because the Great Migration brings huge populations of Southern migrants north, right? Uh, the promise of jobs, both in heavy and light industries, are bringing these workers. And if, if you look at Detroit, right, Henry Ford's promise of the $5 day for black workers is, you know, godsend. Um, and so when we're seeing those hundreds of thousands of African-American migrants move to these cities, that's where we see this conflict. Um, and the conflict is in those industries, right? It is in Henry Ford's factories. It is in uh, these uh, clothing factories. It is in these light industries, heavy industries um, from top to bottom. And that conflict is also shown and borne out in, I mean, what they call de facto racism or de facto segregation, but we know is very much enforced by uh, de jure segregation. Um, and so we're seeing across the board uh, these black migrants being sequestered to certain living areas, certain neighborhoods, uh, due to uh, redlining and then, of course, just flat out racism and these kind of social pressures and social uh, socialized acceptance, right, of these this segregation. Uh, and that's not unique to say, I mean, it's not unique to the to the Midwest, but it's particularly salient, salient in places like St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, and Cleveland, because each have these specific kind of neighborhoods that are, you know, operating in ways similar to Harlem in, in the Black Renaissance or in the Harlem Renaissance, but differently, right? They have their own kind of unique features and characteristics. Um, and so when we see these ideas of patterns of migration, industry, employment, uh, segregation, uh, then the last kind of factor that, you know, adds that little dollop to the uniqueness of Midwestern uh, Black radicalism is that challenge to the perceived conservatism and whiteness of the Midwest, right? Nobody looks at Harlem and nobody looks at uh, the American South and says, ah, that's conservative and white. Got it. Check. But they do for the Midwest. Right. And that's that traditional narrative that I grew up reading about. I was Lewis and Clark. It was the World's Fair. It was white history upon white history upon white history. But part of Midwestern black radicalism is confronting that and finding uh, and, and uh, confronting that and challenging that myth in, uh, in fun, uh, fundamental ways that make us question and rethink mm -hmm. the Midwest and what we think we know of it. So what is unique about it? You know, I can uh, reiterate the patterns of migration and segregation and all these things. Um, but at the end of the day, it's unique because nobody asks those questions or we haven't traditionally. Now, of course, in the past 10, 20 years, we, historians have been looking uh, and interrogating that myth, you know, of the Midwest. Um, and that's been really exciting to be a, a part of that. Um, because, yeah. yeah, there's... there's it, as uh, I think Ashley Howard says, there are black people in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, um, I, th I think we can say we planned it this way, but you know, that this sort of the capstone episode of our last season was with Ashley Howard. Yeah. <laughs> exact same questions. And I think what I really enjoyed about 
your introduction is that you sort of do lay out sort of what like what makes the Midwest form of radical activism so unique. You look at demographic trends, you know, the migration trends and whatnot. Not that it's sort of, you know, saying like, well, radicalism for, you know, a leftist radicalism is is different necessarily than what people are asking for. But sort of the conditions, like as you just said, the conditions that inspire this are sort of unique to sort of the industrial Midwest yeah. at this particular time period. Right. And so I, I Ramio asked this question, you know, thinking about the Midwest and the uniqueness of the Midwest, it, it's something that's sort of a constant in our episode, but mm-hmm. I will just say like, it, you know, it was actually really refreshing to read that introduction and, and have sort of succinct answer for what makes this sort of like the special vintage Midwest sort mm-hmm. of history. Yeah. 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 I'm just glad I'm on a podcast where I don't have to justify why I say we can do that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because I feel like that's half of the panels and conferences and things I do. It's like, why the Midwest? And I'm like, why? why? Do, do you ask Southern historians that? No, they have their own associations mm-hmm. since, you know, 100 years ago. So I'm just glad to be among my people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will, we will accept the term and continue on. Yes. Um, throughout the book, uh, you explore um, the interplay between black activists and, and the Communist Party, which mm. might sur- surprise some listeners. I don't know, but was certainly shocking to like many activists contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you write, quote, many mainstream moderate leaders, both black and white, question why out of all the avenues for protest and redress, these women chose to draw on the traditionally white male led Communist Party, end quote. So. Perhaps you could discuss this connection a bit more. Like, how did this coalition come about uh, in the late 1920s and, and early 1930s? Yeah, so it's this its this really almost a perfect storm of, of different factors. Um, and it, that storm is really kind of represented best in uh, this concrete example of Carrie Smith. Uh, Carrie Smith is one of the strikers in 1933 in St. Louis. So she's a Black uh, worker at the at nut picking factories, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. Um, but during the strike, she meets with the mayor of St. Louis, who at the time is a, a white kind of FDR Democrat. And he's like, well, what, what are you doing? Why are you signing with the communists? What, what could possibly, you know, motivate you to do this? And she looks at him and she's like, look, everyone else knew we were down there rotting in the factories and they did nothing. And like the proof is there. Like the Urban League had reports, the NAACP knew people were suffering and were either unwilling, unable, um, not positioned to be able to address these incredibly dire concerns of the black working class. And so uh, so we have these many features, right? The Great Depression is 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 hitting financial bottom lines of all sorts of organizations, whether it's the Urban League and NAACP churches, uh, individual private charities, uh, private charities. Um, and so they're kind of unable to do this. Then you have the decline of uh, radical organizations such as the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association under Marcus Garvey, uh, who's deported. The organization kind of fractures. And so cities that were once strongholds for this radical activism uh, are kind of left with this void. Um, and so you have former Garveyites in, in places like Chicago who are looking for ways to, to mobilize uh, the black working class uh, during the nation's worst uh, economic depression in the void of help and charity from the government and the NAACP and urban leagues. 
And then in comes the Communist Party. And here's the thing, Communists were, they had done their homework. They were ready for this moment. Um, I mean, the Workers' Party in the United States had been around in some former iterations, 1920. but it was towards the end of the, the 20s that they're they're trying to really reconcile these issues of race and class. And so where do black workers fit into the working class struggle? And like like the communists always do, they came up with this th- uh, theoretical document, right? That helps uh, kind of set the way for what will become known as third period communism. And so uh, the, the communists are looking at this void um, looking at former Garveyites, also looking at uh, former members of the African Blood Brotherhood in, in New York, the Socialist Party, uh, radical union members, and are, you know, giving these theoretical doctrines, but also founding things like the uh, trade union unity leagues, the TUUL um, unions that are interracial, right? Some of the strongest interracial and uh, uh, male and female unions uh, that the 1920s, 1920s and 30s. We're also seeing the creation of the League of Struggle for Negro Rights, which is a communist branch that is specifically devoted to African Americans and uh, Black Americans. And then we see the unemployment council, unemployed councils, which is kind of like the coup de grace for, for the Communist Party. And the unemployed councils weren't necessarily from the com- of, under the auspices of the Communist Party, but they are definitely like a stepchild. And so what you see is these unemployed councils being formed in those segregated communities in Black Bottom, Detroit, or South Side of Chicago, um, where you have communist members coming in, uh, white and black, saying to the working class, hey, we have solutions. The solutions are to come together, to mobilize, uh, as union members, as community members, and to demand certain things. Some of them are bread and butter issues, like literally mm-hmm. bread and butter. Some of them are issues of capitalism doesn't work. How do we address this? And so that's a really long-winded way of putting it's it's a perfect kind of moment uh, for the Communist Party to shine in the void of uh, other the other black radical avenues that have been who, that have left this void is very kind of conveniently uh, filled by the communist party. Now that's not to say that like oh anybody could have stepped in and done this work. No, I mean the communist party were very much primed and organized and structured in a way that they could um, fill in that gap. Uh, you know the communist party has sort of like been beating this drum for a while now and. In some ways, the depression is the moment in which, like, the theory becomes the reality, right? I mean, and, yeah, and so absolutely. is that is that part of that story too? Or it's like uh, we've been we've been saying that yeah. uh, you know, like these industries don't care about you, uh, that the governments aren't going to take care of you, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. the, now you see it, right? In, in a weird way, right? Yeah, in, in a weird, perverse way, the Great Depression was kind of the best thing to happen for the Communist Party. The Communist Party had been warning for a decade, like capitalism will fail. Capitalism is not sustainable. It is not the right thing for for humanity. And the Great Depression laid that all bare. And so we actually see the 1930s as the heyday of American communism. There's literally a book. Harvey Clare wrote that book. 
um, where we see the, the height of membership, the height of influence and involvement, um, because the Great Depression proved the Communist Party right. And um, yeah, and that appealed to, to the Black working class immensely. And like the need to, to, to solve like the immediate bread and butter problems, right. which mm-hmm. is to say like the moderate group simply did not have an answer for this, right? Right, or they were throwing, you know, Trump change at them, yeah. right? There's the Associated Charities in Cleveland uh, that gave this like how to survive on $1 a week for the average family. And it was just insulting. And so instead, mm-hmm. when the radicals in Cleveland are organizing soup kitchens, organizing these charities and these uh, uh, rescue efforts for, for people in need. And so the communists and associated radicals were you know, recognizing like the government, state, uh, local, federal are all honestly full of shit. And mm-hmm. uh, these radicals have better answers, both practical, immediate, and if they wanted to look long term. Thank you. Yeah. Your book is, you know, filled with these incredible vignettes of activists who harness or are attracted to CPUSA politics for a variety of reasons. Um, But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily, quote unquote, good communists, right? Um, Though some of them, of course, embrace the party. So, you know, here we're thinking of people like mm-hmm. Carrie Smith, mm-hmm. Carrie Smith in St. Louis, who's leading the strike against the um, the Nutmogul. By the way, it was an amazing thing to read about the Nutmogul. But anyway, um, Nutmogul Eugene uh, Funston, right? Um, and in the protest, uh, Smith encourages marchers to carry Bibles to the picket lines, where the CPUSA also celebrate. You know, and while the CPUSA also celebrated her activism as carrying you know, the metaphorical brick sandwiches uh, to the strike. So you have this dual image of, you know, brick and the Bible. Um, shocking is the title of your book. Um, and so, you know, class militancy and and a Christianity as sort of this um, inspiration. And, you know, Smith was, was also over the traditional party dynamics in the CPUSA, wasn't necessarily a big fan of religion. Um, you know, one might have heard of Lenin. Um, but, you know, so so I guess I'm wondering how these tensions presented themselves and if they did, how both parties... Yeah, it's them. such a fascinating question. And first I want to say, uh, first, nut mogul is such a great term and I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> uh, second, often when people see the brick and the Bible part in my title, they think I do religious studies. And so I've been on a few panels where... <laughs> with religious scholars. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a communist scholar. I don't, I don't necessarily do religion. And that's kind of like why, what my thinking was when I got into this history, I'm like, oh, it's communist. I won't have to touch religion. Oh, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. But for Carrie Smith, that's not an option. She's a black woman living in St. Louis. She's a migrant from Mississippi. She's an active community leader engaged in her church. Uh, Religion, spirituality was central to her identity. Um, and so to say like, oh, well, just leave the Christianity part out is doing her a disservice because, yeah, she's literally bringing a Bible to the picket line. She's leading uh, the picketers in prayer. They sing uh, gospel songs and spirituals on the picket line. Um, now, did the Communist Party leaders look upon this favorably? Absolutely not. There's quite a bit of documentation uh, saying like, well, we're, we're concerned that she's not really in it to in the whole thing in 
buying uh, all of communist theory. Um, because, of course, there's a famous Marxist saying, you know, uh, religion is opiate of the masses. How religion can be contradictory to the uh, workers' struggle, um, or at least can you know, stymie it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Carrie, that wasn't even a question. Her religion complemented uh, her class militancy. And she isn't the first one. Uh, rights. Uh, the black church uh, for decades had been often the only agent of social change, social protest for African Americans. Now in the 1930s, we're definitely seeing it taken to a different level. And um, Carrie Smith is one example. And she's in St. Louis, which is a southern Midwestern city. So she has these stronger ties to the black church. Um, but uh, it's different in other cities. I think one of my favorite examples in, in Chicago where the Communist Party knew they were dealing with a lot of um, migrants from the South, knew they were dealing with very strong connections to the Black church. And so they would start songs where, or they would have songs where they would change old spirituals and rewrote the lyrics. Uh, And so they have the song, Give Me That Old Time Religion. And they changed the lyrics to, it's good enough for Lenin, it's good enough for me. (laughs) So they're just, they're tweaking things um, you know, to to appeal to this this new population, and so at the same time we see this kind of integration and the complement uh, complementary nature. We're also seeing the lack of the organized black church. So in Chicago, black church will not touch communism. Uh, black church uh, sided on the side of the uh, the owners, the employers. So there's another strike in Chicago in 1933 where Ben Sopkins, who owns apron-making factories, is essentially running sweatshops on the south side. Uh, When the women go on strike, he brings in black preachers to preach to them about how they should remain loyal to their employer. And so we got this real kind of like dirty, insidious move by a white factory owner of sweatshops to tell these black women, oh no, it's it's in your best interest to, to decide with your employer. And so the black church is betraying these black workers. And you see that in Detroit as well. When you have black workers striking at Ford Motor Companies, uh, the black church won't touch them because this is, this is 100% true. Guess who is giving the black churches coal during winter? Like there's this documentation that Henry Ford is basically supplying the black churches with uh, funds and finances and keeping them warm during winter as long as they stay quiet about unions. And so black churches across the board are uh, are very are silent. Black churchgoers are not. And so that's where you have people like Carrie Smith enter the conversation. She goes, you know what? My black church leaders may not be there for me, but that's okay. I got my own Bible. I have my own version of what it means to be a uh, faith-oriented activist. And so I think that's the real, the real interesting part in how those tensions kind of are, are I don't want to say sorted out because they're always there, um, but uh, that's how it, it doesn't stop Carrie Smith's actions. It only motivates her. So yeah, so communism and religion absolutely uh, can go hand in hand. Yeah, it strikes me as sort of like there's these hybrid uh, sort of, uh, you know, there's a theory. And as you point out, I mean, you're you're sort of looking at the praxis of how these movements are working. And in fact, like, you know, for the people on the ground, it's it's not a Mm -hmm. debate of 
you know, do I have to put the Bible down in order to support these politics as opposed to, you know, like, actually, this is an empowering space for me to, uh, you know, claim just and good. Yeah. And there's, there's another instance of a, a, a black uh, preacher on the, the South Side, uh, Reverend Austin, uh, who was told he couldn't mm. open his church to communists. And he gives a, uh, a talk where he's like, what, what's so bad about the communists? From what I hear, they're the ones who are advocating for the poor. <laughs> Jesus Christ was a communist. And it's like, what? Where is he going? And so he was definitely an outlier. Um, but it honestly made a whole lot of sense for, for many of these uh, religious-minded activists. I guess the question, you know, the focus of the book is on Black women's radicalism. And I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about your choice to focus on gender. Yeah. The thing is, like, as at the same time we're seeing these women, you know, lead strikes, organize in factories, uh, integrate segregated pools, things like these incredibly public uh, political moves, uh, they're always strongly identifying with these traditional gender norms. Um, and so this, this comes out of the progressive era. Right. We're out of we're coming out of the 1920s. We're coming out of the black club, black club women's movement that has very specific ideas about race, class and gender. Right. And um, these ideas of what scholars will call black respectability. Right. And these middle class politics of how to present yourself, your hygiene, your dress, the way you speak, uh, all these kind of what would today we call classes. Um, but at the time, these were very much survival mechanisms for for the black working class. Um, and so uh, by the 1930s, we're not seeing a complete dismissal of these politics of respectability. Uh, we're seeing what uh, LaShawn Harris calls like this, this idea of respectability politics as being fluid and shifting and responsive to the times, right? And so these women are still... Mm-hmm very much adhering to, you know, middle-class hygiene and <laughs> clothing, um, but their emphasis on, like, family values and religion and community building have shifted, right? It's not this Black clubs women um, ideas of, you know, founding the orphanage or giving back to help young unwed mothers. Uh, instead, we're seeing this as uh, being... Uh, complementary to working class activism. So, for example, uh, during the strike in nineteen in, in St. Louis, uh, uh, Cora Smith, is, or sorry, Cora Lewis, is bringing her children to the picket lines. Like families would come out. These factories were in black neighborhoods, so the whole community rallied around these women. And it wasn't this kind of respectability politics of of old that were rallying around charity and hard work and, you know, things like that. Instead, we're rallying around fighting injustice, fighting this exploited, exploitive uh, conditions of labor. Uh, we're fighting for Black women. And so you're seeing Black men there as supporting figures instead of that central figure in the Black family. And so the Great Depression here brings that militancy to respectability politics. Um, because there's these women were protecting their family, right? They worked so they could feed their family, um, and so it's 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 this weird again uh, tension um, that is 
often played out in, in with working class women. It's like, how do you, how do you understand a militant woman protesting in the street as a wife, as a mother, as a homemaker in those traditional gender roles? And honestly, that's something the Communist Party really struggled with, um, uh, just in terms of, of, of gender in the Communist Party. But when you add the racial dynamic, it's uh, not something that you see communist, white communist men really come to full grasps with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that, that's played out uh, definitely on those picket lines, definitely in these, these avenues of politics and resistance. Um, but for every woman, it's different. And I don't want to like generalize, but for like Cora Lewis, it meant bringing her family to the picket lines. Great. Thank you. Your book focuses on the Midwest, but you make sure to note um, that there is, in fact, some variation, right, between the locales. You focus on uh, activists in Detroit, St. Louis, Chicago, and Cleveland. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little about the ways in which the conditions in these different cities shaped the way activism occurred um, and or was received uh, in those places. Yeah. So the first, I just want to like put out there my choice of these cities. Um, and honestly, it was 1930 sentence, 1930 census. What were the uh, three largest, or sorry, what were the four largest uh, Midwestern cities? And these were the cities. Uh, and then I began, began to, the history began to reveal myself that there's some really interesting things happening here. Um, and it's, it's in one way, it's really hard to draw all the parallels because you have a, a one industry town like Detroit, where it's the automobile industry, right? And that's where all black radicalism, you know, kind of circulates around. Um, how do you compare that to St. Louis, where you have a lot of mixed industry, heavy and light, you have uh, a real Southern presence because it's so close to the South. Many people call it the southernmost Midwestern town and things like that. Then you have a place like Chicago, which is kind of like the birth of uh, American radicalism, right? It's where the hay, uh, Haymarket martyrs were hanged. It's where the, it's the birth of the eight-hour workday, right? It's this incredibly radical city. And then you have Cleveland. <laughs> and this is what I've discovered about Cleveland. Uh, nobody writes about Cleveland. Because, <laughs> uh, like, we have studies on radicalism in Chicago and Detroit and more recently St. Louis, but Cleveland has been this kind of void. So I want to take a second to talk about Cleveland and why it hasn't really been part of this radical narrative and radical history. And um, It has really strong communist ties. It was an industrial city, obviously, um, but due to this kind of northeastern location, it was seen as liberal and reform-minded. Um, and there's like an established black population that lives there in the 1920s, kind of middle class. But like every city, the Great Depression changes that. And uh, activists in Cleveland will try to find ways to navigate that kind of reform, liberal-minded city. Mm-hmm. And so you have a woman like Maud White who um, who comes to, to, to Cleveland. She's been educated in Moscow. She's union leader in New York. She comes to Cleveland. She's ready to bring the radicalism and they're not ready for it. And so she seeks these inroads with more reform-minded um, institutions. She begins to integrate. Uh, there's a segregated pool that she integrates in like 1938 Cleveland. Like, why are we talking about that? Because the racism still exists there. And so we do have, you know, 
variation between these locations and activists have to keep that in mind. But like I said from the beginning, what makes Midwestern Black radicalism happen is the Great Migration and these uh, and these conflicts that occur in city after city after city because Cleveland has its own segregated Black mm-hmm. neighborhood. It has its own racism hidden and blatant. Um, and kind of this is what I eventually, I shied away from calling these case studies, but they're really, they're case studies. Um, but what makes them interesting is the fact that there's more, right? Um, I, I toyed with expanding uh, this and then got overwhelmed and was like, you know what, I'm okay. Uh, but places like Milwaukee, Minneapolis, mm-hmm. Indianapolis, uh, Des Moines, right, are all uh, undergoing similar transformations with the Great Migration, but have their own particular variations. Is there Black radicalism happening there? Happening there? I don't know. Can't wait to find out. Um, and and so I think that's what makes it so interesting. We have cities that are alike but different. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you hope listeners of Heartland History, which is now, you know, a very popular Mm -hmm. podcast, uh, will take away from this book? Um, How does this research change our understanding of the Midwest and how might it prompt scholars of the region to think about the space? Yeah, so in the last, you know, 20 years, so recently when you're thinking in historical terms, Scholars have been looking more and more at the civil rights movement outside the South. Um, And so, you know, led by amazing scholars like Jean Thayer Harris, we've been looking at the the long civil rights movement as it exists Mm -hmm. in the North. Um, And so that's been great. We're finding all these amazing stories of civil rights activism in in Chicago and places like Des Moines and we're we're looking at how you know those activists of the 60s and 70s have built these uh, structures um, uh, that have been you know either embraced or uh, have deteriorated over time, and so so they're doing excellent work of the 60s and 70s. What I hope people take away from my book is we have to look earlier, right? Mm-hmm. We can't understand Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party uh, of the late 1960s in Chicago if we don't look at the radical union activity and the organizing in the uh, Black neighborhoods with the communists in the 1930s. You just you cannot understand the civil rights history without studying the 1930s. And, and that's part of the argument that Jacqueline Dowd Hall made in ugh, 2005, I think, at this point, um, is that, that if we truly want to understand the civil rights movement, we have to think of it as this long, longer history. Um, she didn't specifically mention the Midwest, but I think the Midwest is essential to this, this study of the long civil rights movement. Um, and the 1930s and these moments of radical agitation for Black women um, is essential to that as well. So thinking of the Midwest um, not as a blank slate prior to the 1960s, that everything has a precursor, everything has a, a, a prologue, Uh, I think helps us to make sense of 1960s activism and then, of course, activism today, right? If we truly want to understand how could this happen in Ferguson or what do do they want in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. right? Yes, we look at the Black Power Movement. Yes, we look at the Civil Rights Movement, but we also look at 1930s radical activism led by Black women. Mm -hmm. You know, along those lines, I mean, you know, this is a recent publication, but I'm curious, are there 
any projects underway that listeners should be keeping an eye for um, from you down the road? Yeah. So uh, when I was writing this book, I, you know, I try to highlight the, uh, as many black women as, as possible and highlight their voices um, and what they're doing in the 1930s. Um, but as I, you know, worked along the book, I'm like, oh, this woman is really fascinating life. This is a really fascinating story that, you know, exists beyond the 1930s. And so I kind of make notes and be like, oh, you know, write about her one day or write about her another day. And so I'm writing that book now. Um, I'm currently working on the book uh, with international publishers, which is the Communist Press, uh, called Their Examples Where Inspire Us, Five Black Communist Women. And so this is kind of a, it's a five microbiographies is what I'm calling it, because they're, they're biographies not to be a, a comprehensive, but to really... Uh, to stake out this claim for black women in the communist party. And so four of these women I've looked at before in the, in my previous book, Maddie Woodson, Eleanor Rye, Romania Ferguson, and Mark White. Um, and they have really fascinating stories, all operating out of the Midwest, but then also New York, several of them uh, studied in Moscow under the communist party, really, really fascinating lives and careers that uh, hopefully these biographies can kind of highlight, amplify, and then encourage others to, you know, take it further. And then there's uh, one more woman I'm adding to it, and I'm just going to talk about her for a second, because she's my current research obsession, would probably be the correct word, um, Edna Griffin, who is uh, best known for her work in uh, Des Moines, where in 1948, she, she, she pushed uh, against a racist uh, drugstore owner to um, force him to uh, allow African-Americans to sit at the lunch counter. I mean, Iowa already had a civil rights act or a civil rights law, um, but nobody followed it. So she went there and forced the issue. What most people don't, well, and so she celebrated for that action as she should be. There's a bridge named after her. There's a building named after her. Uh, but what most people don't know is she was a radical black communist. She was educated in, in Harlem during the Harlem Depression. She fought against uh, police brutality. Uh, she fought uh, against, uh, or she fought for interracial organizing and black women employed in uh, packing houses in Detroit, uh, in Des Moines and Iowa. She traveled around Iowa uh, visiting white farms and organizing white farmers. She was doing crazy things while she was desegregating this, this lunch counter. And she's only known for that kind of, oh, she, she was the Rosa Parks of Iowa is what they call her. And I just want to strangle someone because she is so much more than that. And so Edna Griffin is her name. Look her up. She's awesome. But uh, so she's will be featured in this, this, this project of microbiographies as well, because like we see the legacy, we benefit from the legacy of these, these black women. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we only understand them on superficial levels. And so my role is to help amplify those other levels and to see them for the complex human beings that they were um, and the absolute badasses <laughs> that they were. Uh, so yeah, so that's upcoming actually, maybe out in spring. We'll see. Great. Yes. And, and, and just to, you know, we've mentioned it earlier, but just to reiterate, I mean, nice. the, the, the way that you sort of weave stories together in, in each of your chapters is, is really, um, it's great storytelling, to be honest. And, and oh, I've already, yeah. Sort of brought in some of these um, examples into my Illinois history class that I'm going to be teaching in the fall. We want to give out a shout out to Southern Illinois uh, University Press, which was very patient with me the whole time. But 
Um, and then also my readers. I think we don't in academia give enough props to peer reviews, peer reviewers, um, but mm -hmm. mine were just absolutely fantastic and really helped me, you know, make this a story rather than just a listing of, of activities and events. It's my pleasure and it's my um, honor to, to, to tell these stories. Uh, well, Melissa, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely great conversation, a great way to start the uh, next season of Heartland History. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.